Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Welcome to the Gilded Age and Progressive Era a podcast about the United States and the world in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. I'm your host, Michael Patrick Cullinane. Over the last five years, we've been talking a lot about statues, probably more about public memorials and commemoration than we have in the last 25, 30 years. And historians have been at the vanguard of that conversation, especially about Confederate monuments. Scholars have spent a great deal of time reframing Confederate heroes as Civil War traitors, and many of us have long advocated that those statues of soldiers, people like Robert E. Lee or Stonewall Jackson, should come down across the nation. This has had a knock-on effect. Slavery sympathizers like South Carolina Senator John Calhoun have had their monuments removed. Roads and buildings have recently been renamed. Confederate battle flags have long been a source of insult, and they've come down from places. And holidays that pay tribute to the Confederacy or its agents have been canceled. Action is being taken. This traction for change today encourages us to also consider the motives for erecting such monuments. Why did they go up? Who put them there? How have they lasted for more than a century? During the Gilded Age and Progressive Era, more than any other period in American history, communities commemorated the Confederacy. The period saw widespread growth of plaques and statues, symbols and signs, memorials that were artistic and utilitarian. And that says something about the period and the ideas of the time. Memorials are much more than static reflections of the past. They tell of power in society. They project our values as people, and not only when they're erected, but into the future, like a mnemonic reminder. They tell stories. They curate history. They offer invectives, parables, myths, and metaphors. In youth, I pass by memorials big and small without a second thought. But today, as an adult, memorials seem more like totems of power. And once you notice it, You can't help but think about who put it there and why it's still there. Today, I'm joined by Ashley Lauren Sanders, Assistant Professor of African American History at the University of Colorado Boulder. Her ongoing work explores the legacy of the Civil War, the commemorations of the Civil War, and how those acts of memory generated a culture that fostered the lost cause mythology. Ashley's work grapples with the ways that memorials and commemoration communicate ideas of race from one generation to the next. Our increased awareness about culture, symbols, and statuary makes her work more important than ever before. The conversations that we're having about statues to to slave traders in Bristol, or about tyrannical Belgian monarchs or Italian rapists, all of that begins really, I think, with the push to topple Confederates in the United States. In other words, the American debates have reverberated around the world. Thanks so much for joining the show, Ashley. Thank you, thank you for having me. Well, it's a pleasure to have you not least because this is a topic that we've been talking about uh, for ages, it seems like, Confederate statues. Uh, but really in the last you know, five years, this has really picked up momentum. And I, I thought that we would start off with a sort of baseline question about history and about sites of memory, because not all listeners will be as well-versed as you and I might be in, in that topic. How do memorials play a part in our culture? Mm. Oh, that's such a good and complicated question. Um, Memorials traditionally have played a part in shoring up community and national identity. 
Um, in the sense of the Civil War, it's done both. And since that, you know, there are national Civil War memorials that honor Union and Union soldiers or, you know, United States soldiers. Um, but there are many, many, many Confederate monuments and memorials that honor people, white Southerners, who fought for the Confederacy. There are smaller monuments that have regional monuments about certain events. There are memorials, you know, in certain communities. Um, it's really both micro and macro. I think traditionally people have thought of monuments as permanent fixtures in our commemorative landscape. And I think the last five to seven years has shown that not everyone agrees on that anymore. Uh, so we're in this really interesting moment where people are actually questioning what I always say is the semi-permanent fixture of monuments, memorials in our landscape. Um, and there are people who are saying that this is not actually something that we should have up on a permanent basis. Maybe it's up for reconsideration on when our values change or when, you know, society's values change. So memorials have been important, but I think, you know, in recent years, we've seen uh, younger generations in particular question their permanence. What extent do you think monuments, memorials, artistic or utilitarian, what, to what extent do you think they have a power to inform our present day thinking or, or even maybe our future thinking about uh, politics, you know, social questions, whatever? I think monuments say a lot about what particular communities or locales valued at a particular time and maybe what they still value by keeping them up or tearing them down. Um, I think that there is power in them. Right, like aesthetically, some of the monuments are huge. They take up a lot of space. You can't miss them, right? They're not hidden. They're directly in your sight, you know, for a particular reason, and that holds power. Also, the amount of you know political and financial upkeep to keep monuments up, right, and to actually contribute to the upkeep of monuments, um, sort of been played down a bit, right? But these things matter, they're on public land, a lot of them are, right? Uh, that requires money, that requires sometimes laws. In some Southern states, there are so many laws now, Heritage Act in South Carolina, for example, like the amount of political willpower and attention that went to protecting monuments through these types of acts, the amount of debates that happen. Um, and I think, you know, we can't actually like think about history as being told through monuments, but it does say a lot about particular time and places. So if I'm walking, you know, in Charleston, for example, which is near where I'm from, you know, when the Calhoun Monument was used to be up there and I'm walking, seeing this huge monument, what do I think besides one, there was a power structure in Charleston that wanted to erect a monument to John C. Calhoun in the 19th century. And also when it was still up, a power structure that did not want it to come down. Now what it says is that things have changed significantly, right? In Charleston to the point that that monument came down. So while I don't think it tells history specifically through its just existence, it does say a lot about what communities value. I think that's a great way of putting it, especially, you know, we focus on that idea of time. For those of us that periodize the Gilded Age, it often begins in 1877, that sort of jumping off point when federal troops are removed from the South and white supremacist, you know, ex-Confederate redeemers rise to power, also the rise of Jim Crow, of course. Does Confederate statuary fit with that broader trend? And, and when and what are the first statues that begin to go up? It does. I mean, we see, so by the time we get to the 18, late 1870s, right? Reconstruction's ending, we're ending redemption period. We're starting to see how white Southerners are gradually taking over political leadership in the South again, right? It happens through violence, primarily through violence against African-Americans or white Republicans. There are many massacres throughout 1876, 1877, um, through those last years of reconstruction. It's not immediate in some places. It's much slower in other places, right? Uh, much slower in Virginia, for example. But by the time it gets to the 1880s and 1890s, first of all, the term lost cause has become firmly a part of white Southern identity. Then we get the founding of the Sons of Confederate Veterans, the United Daughters of the Confederacy. Um, and you know, these organizations, and particularly the United Daughters of the Confederacy, are major benefactors of monuments, right? You know, Karen Cox's book, Dixie Daughters, talks about this. Um, and this is, you know, this is all sort of happening at the same time. So as, as white Southerners are taking over governments again, they're also 
and the late 19th, early 20th century erecting monuments at a rapid rate. It's almost like they are throughout the commemorative landscape in a very physical way, um, you know, putting their stamp on the South, right? Like not only have they taken over all these governments, we start to see rights rolled back very quickly for African-Americans in the South. It becomes very dangerous for African-Americans. The South institution of Jim Crow laws, you know, happens around the same time as they're putting their physical stamp on the landscape. So in that way, monuments are really indicative of like a huge political and social change that's happening in the South, you know, in the years following the end of Reconstruction. We absolutely have to talk more about the lost cause and, and the mythology of all that. But before we do, you mentioned a couple of groups that I wanted to ask you a little bit more about. I mean, just generally speaking, who are the people that are putting up these monuments? What communities are they representing? And, and what, tell us a little bit more about the personal agency behind the erection of monuments, because it seems to me with all monuments, it's the people that are behind the process of erecting these things are critical to how we interpret them and how we place them in their time. So, I mean, sounds of Confederate veterans, you know, pretty self-explanatory, right? <laughs> you know, these are people who trace, you know, their ancestry back to, you know, people who fought in the Confederacy. That's the case for that organization even now, right? Um, United Daughters of the Confederacy, the same. They're modeled after like, you know, daughters of the American Revolution, you know. Um, so they're white women. They're often middle-class, upper-middle-class, upper-class women. Um, they're part of what's a larger club movement during this, this era as well, women's club movement, right? So we see women's clubs emerge all across the nation during the same time period. So you have to understand United Daughters of Confederacy is part of that also. Also, they emerge kind of, you know, out of ladies' memorial associations, which existed, you know, during after the end of the war, you know, where they start to create like, you know, Confederate grave sites and memorials. Um, so the idea is that, you know, women in particular are uniquely positioned to be the holders of this memory, right? Um, and these are women who are prominent in their, in their respective communities and societies. Um, you know, many of them write histories themselves. Many of them have connections um, to local governments, to historical societies, which are being founded all across the South during this time period. They have immense power and they see their connection in particular to children um, as being paramount because children are how, you know, all these ideals of like the old South and all the lost causes and mythologies are gonna be passed along to generations. Um, so primarily, at least in the UDC, you see it as sort of like a middle-class phenomenon, right? Though, I mean, you can say that people of, you know, you know, people who may be working class base to subscribe to some of these beliefs as well, but the type of woman that's involved in a woman's club period, even outside of the UDC, is a particular woman of a particular class. But of course, that means they have immense influence, right? So they can get the funding, right? They can fundraise. They can help get the local funding. They can get these laws passed to get these monuments erected. Like all of this matters. Um, and the UDC grows, you know, I think at their height, they had over a hundred something thousand members um, nationwide. That's the other thing is that, you know, there are UDC chapters all throughout the nation in the West, in the Midwest, in the Northeast, right? People move, people are on the move and they establish these sort of mini communities all across the nation as well. Um, and yeah, and they're, and they're powerful. They're powerful. This is why they're able to erect as many monuments as they do. Interesting that you mentioned that they're part of historical associations, and I suspect they're really good at taking minutes so that there's, there's meetings and there's records of these groups that are really well documented and preserved, probably. I mean, what, what do those documents say about the lost cause. What are what are the women saying? Are the reasons why these monuments are going up, or why they're maintaining and preserving them? You know, I always use when I try to illustrate like exactly what they're trying to do. I always use examples of some of the textbooks that they wrote. Uh, you know, to counter what they saw as like the northern you know, like Northerners are, are taking over our education system and they're gonna, you know, they're gonna teach us this inaccurate, you know, version of, of the lost cause, right? Um, so, you know, what you see is people like Mildred Lewis Rutherford, I always use like one of her like truths of the civil war when I teach this and I show them exactly. It's just like, 
the war, some of the chapter titles, like the war was not about slavery. Like, you know, the North is the one that started slavery. Slaves, slavery wasn't that bad. It's like every basic boom, boom, boom tenet of what the lost cause, what we understand the lost cause to be, this is what they're teaching in these textbooks, right? So they explain this pretty clearly that they think that the North has dominated the discourse about the war and has made the South into a villain. So because of that, you know, they then, you know, they're the victims. They then have to write these histories, right? To set the record straight about what actually happened, right? It just so happens that these histories just conveniently, you know, dovetail with all the other power structures that basically say that Black people are inferior, you know, that, you know, reconstruction was this overreach, you know, there is some symmetry between what, you know, some people like uh, Rutherford is putting out along with what we're seeing from the Dunning School, right? So there's symmetry in this sort of non-academic history, like academic historians don't get off scot-free in this time period either, right? Um, and we're seeing that symmetry. So they're, they're defending all these ideals about a pastime to justify the racial hierarchy that exists in their present time, right? Because if, if the Civil War wasn't about slavery and, you know, and slavery wasn't that bad, then, you know, A plus B equals, of course, you know, we're the victims in the scenario. We were put upon by these white Northerners. Um, what I will say is I actually think the reframing of that, you know, from my perspective, and I also think, um, you know, the Volia Glimpse had an excellent chapter about this uh, called Liberty Dearly Bought where you can reframe it and thinking the backlash was not against white Northerners, but black Southerners. Because what happens is black Southerners start to take the memory of the Civil War in their own hands. And they're out in public celebrating and white Northerners, I mean, white Southerners are mad uh, and they're seeing their way of life slipping away. So the backlash may be partially to white Northerners, but I always argue largely to black Southerners, the people who they're more sort of intimately in the same spaces with they did not want them to dominate the memory of the Civil War. Right. I think that's interesting. And it's also interesting because Black Southerners remain the victims of the changing culture in the post-bellum period. So it's, it's, it's important to, to have that perspective. I suppose the other thing that you mentioned that has given me a sense of perspective that I didn't have before, uh, I grew up in New Jersey and about 20 miles north of Princeton, which is often called the northernmost outpost of Southern culture. <laughs> the uh, northernmost ivy, was, uh, the, the <laughs> southernmost ivy, isn't that what the terminology is? The southernmost yeah. ivy, yeah, exactly, yeah, yeah. Um, I was blown away by how many street names there are in a Union state that are named after Confederate soldiers. I mean, I, and I was also blown away by states like Kentucky that have dozens and dozens of monuments to Confederates built almost exclusively in the Gilded Age. So why do we see this kind of commemoration in the North and the borders? Yeah, I mean, you know, I was just in Ohio and there were several street names named after Lee and Jackson about, you know, 15 minutes outside of Cincinnati. And we know Ohio was purely <laughs> a union state. Um, it's interesting, a couple of things happened. One is that, you know, a lot of Southerners moved North. You know, at the same time that there was this great migration of Black Southerners moving to the West and to the North, there was also like a migration of white Southerners moving out of the South as well. So in some cases, they set up these sort of outposts, right? Like I talked about the establishment of, you know, the UDC chapters and stuff all across the nation. That's part of it. The other part is sort of bringing this very specific memory with them, right? The other thing, and some of these names in Ohio popped up in like the 70s, from what I can tell. The other thing about that is just the spread of lost cause history nationally. Um, I don't think we talk nearly about, nearly as much about how much impact this history had outside of the South. To the extent that we hear this, you know, old like phrasing of, you know, oh, the Civil War wasn't about slavery, it was about states' rights that's a victory of the lost cause, right? That is a victory of the lost cause. And even the romanticization of, of the South and the war, the brother versus brother narrative, right? Uh, this idea that there was no real villain or bad side in the war, that's also a, vic a victory of the lost cause. And that has made its way nationally. Like I've looked at textbooks from the 50s and 60s 
in Northern states, which talk in very sort of whitewashing tones about the cause of the war um, and what the war meant and even about reconstruction. And like I said, this, you know, this spreads, you know, we saw it spread to the academy, you know, through like one of the, you know, most elite institutions that exist in Columbia University through the Dunning School and all of the, the acolytes of the Dunning School that went all across the nation and many other elite universities, right? So this spreads on so many different levels. So by the time that we even get to the late, you know, 20th century, I think historians are still battling what is not just a Southern phenomenon, but a very real nationalization of the lost cause, which by the way, is exactly what African-Americans feared would happen <laughs> when they saw like, you know, white Northerners being ooh and aahing around Birth of a Nation and all these other like films, you know, uh, in the early part of the 20th century. I mean, that's the thing that gets me. I, I can understand to a certain extent why in the 1960s, Robert Cook's book about you know, the, the centennial celebrations of the Civil War give this revival to the lost cause uh, through monuments and memorials and commemorative activities. But the Gilded Age still seems like a period that's so, I mean, you know, the Grand Army of the Republic is still holding events on a regular basis. The veterans are still alive and yet you see this commemoration up North, it's mind boggling. I, I, and I wondered, were there protests? I mean, were communities actively protesting the erection of Confederate memorials? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think the one, the most notable one most people talk about, and I write about him too, is, you know, is John Mitchell Jr. in Richmond, uh, who's writing just as the early parts of Monument Avenue are going up in Richmond, you know, the Lee Monument being the first among them. And, you know, he writes a series of articles just kind of calling out the danger of what's happening, you know, describing the fact that um, <laughs> at one of the ceremonies for the monuments, he saw more Confederate flags than American flags. And, you know, warning about lifting Lee up to the same level as say George Washington, right? Like saying this country has founders, you know, and we're putting Lee up on the same sort of level as a George Washington. Um, and even in, you know, even in the 1870s, in newspapers, you start to see people like Frederick Douglass actually using the terminology lost cause and calling it out directly and saying, this is dangerous. Lost cause is dangerous. And, you know, when the states start to change their constitutions and add in all these Jim Crow laws in the late 19th, early 20th century, we see a lot of people saying, this is the lost cause in action, right? And saying that, you know, what these people sought was a return to slavery. Now that might seem like hyperbole, but for people who are just a few decades removed from slavery, this is a real fear, right? Like they've seen how quickly their rights can evaporate after this sort of, you know, as Du Bois's brief shining moment, right? What he says about reconstruction, they see how quickly things can evaporate. So, and they name the lost cause as part of those dangers, right? So there's a contemporaneous, as the lost cause is rising, the terminology, you know, is rising even before the establishment of these Confederate legacy organizations, we see African-Americans simultaneously protesting, calling it out, um, you know, trying to, you know, attack the idea of funding, using this sort of moral suasion argument about what it means to praise the Confederacy, what it means about, you know, the United States to, to praise the Confederacy. Um, and they're warning about it. You know, even some of the histories written in the 1880s about the Civil War, sort of allude to some of the, the false ideas that the lost cause is starting to put out, um, is starting to be successful putting out into the mainstream. Yeah, I think it's incredible. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. 
A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Were, were any of the um, sort of union memorializers, you know, like Grand Army of the Republic or, you know, states up in the north where... There's not that white terrorism that uh, African-Americans would have faced in the South, at least to the same extent, you know, yeah. <laughs> obviously there's still plenty of terrorism right. uh, and, and still lynching too, but uh, not to the same extent. And, but also there's, there's white uh, union commemorative groups. Are they protesting monuments and memorials? Are they kind of going out of their way to say that this is, doesn't, doesn't jive with history? Yeah, I mean, I see in my research that the GAR does in some instances. I mean, it's difficult because in the South, the GAR is like, you know, there's like segregated posts of the GAR. Um, you know, there's like Black posts for like Black Union veterans. And we do see like some Black GAR posts talking specifically about um, monuments, but also about like white Southern memory, uh, what white Southerners are saying about the war. Um, we also see some, you know, Black veterans in particular calling out white Northerners for erasing Black contributions to the war as well. Um, later on in this time period, by the time Birth of a Nation comes out, there are GR posts that actually protest Birth of a Nation that say that Birth of a Nation is dangerous. Um, so we, you know, we do see that. I think it's difficult though, because GR is very complicated. On the one hand, it is an interracial organization. On the other hand, you know, civil rights wasn't you know, Black people's civil rights wasn't paramount for many people, many GAR members. And then we also have just this culture of reconciliation reunion that exists as well, right? So we get these like blue-gray reunions. Um, the Gettysburg reunion, as I think Caroline Janney points out, is not, was not as, you know, everyone wasn't as, you know, all together as some of the accounts like to make it seem, right? There were a lot of veterans who were very angry and still very bitter about the war. I think, you know, her book, Remembering the Civil War, points that out. But the fact that there is this idea of reunion, right? Like the idea that veterans, like white veterans in particular, are coming together, you know, to, to basically put all the wounds of the past behind them, right? And I think when I think about that, I think about, okay, what kind of ideology would lead you to be able to do this so easily, which is that the stakes are not the same, right? It was a bloody war for everyone, but the stakes of the consequences of the war weren't the same. So, I mean, whereas there are some incidents, you know, of, of people protesting these things, most of the voices in particular you hear in the South, of course, are Black people. I wondered as well about the period, you know, the Gilded Age and Progressive Era seems to be not just about the Civil War, but for a, a lot of other American events or personalities and characters, there's there's monuments going up at a pace where we, we, we don't see before in American history and we, we actually don't see after as well. Is there something about this period and the proclivity to put up statues? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. Like, you know, I guess in the late 19th century, we start to see like this increasing nationalist fervor again. Um, you know, part of it, I think, in the late 19th, early 20th century is like this kind of need to like reestablish like national identities again, right? Like U.S. still a very young nation at this point. Um, and there's also just this kind of movement that monuments in particular are like the way to like shore up national sentiment. 
Um, you know, I always talk about George Washington Williams, who's black veteran, a lawyer, diplomat, he did everything, uh, as is the case of many people during this time period. And in his history of, of black soldiers of civil war, he devotes like the entire last chapter to how there should be a monument, right, to black soldiers. And he actually says like, you know, oh, stories and songs are fine, but the way you teach history is through monumental brass, right? Like he said, and he like talks, I think he talks about like the French putting up monuments and he like makes a sort of like transnational argument about how like monuments can like be the way to cement a particular narrative. And I've thought about that a lot and about, you know, just as you said, this time period, even beyond just the civil war, being this time period where people just really believe that that you know, this was the way to shore up, to cement certain narratives, right? Like he says, in brass, to cement narratives in brass, but also um, once we get to like, you know, the Spanish-American War and the Philippine-American Wars in late 19th century, early 20th century, you know, there's also kind of like this, you know, this sort of battle about like masculinity and maleness and, you know, there hasn't been a war, you know, we have a whole generation of men who haven't fought in wars. And what do we want to remind people of? Military glory, right? Like, and this is what a lot of these monuments do, right? They remind us of military might, military glory, very masculine. So I think that's also another element that I think about, about this idea of like what monuments do, you know, and why people are so, you know, even to today, I would argue, very intent on whenever we want to commemorate something that it has to be a monument. Like it has to be something like physical, tangible, and it also has to be very masculine. So I think when we're getting into this sort of manufactured crisis of masculinity in the late 19th, early 20th century, right? In the Gilded Age and Progressive Era, the erection of monuments is sort of part of that, right? Monuments have a very masculine tone to them. They want to remind you know, Americans of their sort of masculine past. So I think that's another reason why we see a lot of monuments erected during this time. Look, I don't want to be crude, but you know, even the idea of erecting anything is right. somewhat masculine. <laughs> I, I mean, it's true, but there is there is this sort of you know this performance about it, right? Like you know, the man on the horse, right? And he's just kind of rugged, and he's you know this, and like this is what people want to represent. So many ideas, right? In particular, ideas around the nation. Um, you know, I see it a lot in the way that I talk about the difference between Black men and women with Civil War memory. Black men lean a lot on masculinist narratives, right, about military service and, you know, patriotism and all these things. Black women's narratives are a little bit more inclusive of, like, enslaved men and women who weren't soldiers or women's experiences during the war in particular, which are very unique, right? But they don't also shore up this idea of, like, the ideal male citizen, right? Um, so you even see that with, with Black people's sort of, you know, memory of the Civil War during this time period. Brilliant. And it's brilliant the way you wrap up everything there, too, because you mentioned the Spanish-American War, and you can think about uh, former Union troops or at least, you know, new recruits to uh, an American army marching through the South on its way to Cuba and the sort of uh, reconciliation process that's meant. And they're, they're walking past statues to Confederates at this stage, you know, questioning, it's, I mean, it, it paints a really interesting portrait of what the United States was going through in terms of identity and in terms of uh, its, I suppose, reconciling its, its, its own history. Um, if, if you had to pick a couple of statues to talk about, to highlight to people that are listening as really good examples of, you know, how you can tell the story of the lost cause through these memorials, which ones would they be? Ooh. Well, I think the Lee Monument is really important in Richmond, which of course has since, you know, come down because, you know, it's, it sets off, it's at this important time period, like it's 1890, right? And then it sort of sets off then what becomes a very dominant part of the landscape of Richmond, right? That it's just, you know, this 1890 turning point, which is such this essential time period in the history of Virginia, right? They still have black politicians in Virginia during this time period. Um, you know, you know, it's like the, it's, it's a change. It marks a change, right? And it happens over the next, I think it's like the next 10 years or so where they populate the rest of that avenue with these huge statues. And what it's meant for understanding, I think there's a reason why everything was sort of focused in on Richmond and their monuments, because it's kind of set the standard for understanding monuments in the rest of the country in a lot of ways. Um, 
I think the other one that I would actually point to was either of the Nathan Bedford Forest statues, right? Because that says a lot about the fact that those statues were up as long as they were. In Tennessee, knowing what we've known about Nathan Bedford Forest for as long as we have, the statues still being up and the defenses of these statues. And some of these statues, I think one of them went up in the 1990s. Don't quote me on that. It was recent. (laughs) It was recent that the statue went up. I think it was like in the mid 90s or late 90s. That tells a story too. First of all, it's a really ugly statue. I'm just saying, I'm putting it out there. I don't know if you've ever seen it. If you've ever seen his face on that statue, it's ridiculous. Like it makes no sense. But also I always tell people statues still continually went up. I don't know if any have gone up in the last few years, but by the late 2000 teens, they were still going up, you know, in sort of, you know, different municipalities, et cetera. Um, So what does it mean that in 1990s, we know the history of the KKK, right? We know that Nathan Bedford Forrest led a massacre for a pillow. We know all these things, right? This is established history. Not many people would disagree with this history at this point. What does it mean that that statue goes up in the 1990s? Right? I think it says a lot about how not quickly this has been happening. First of all, how rapid the last five, six years have been. I think we kind of have to sit back and be like, wow, this has been a crazy and amazing last five years as far as dealing with commemorative landscape. But also it was as recent as like the late nineties where we had people erecting statues of people who were KKK leaders and led massacres during the civil war. So, you know, I think those two statues to me tell a really important story as do just, you know, some of the battles over the generic statues that still exist, which is a question I get all the time. What do we do with a statue that's just too, you know, Confederate soldiers? It's not Lee, it's not Jackson, it's not, you know, Burgard. And, you know, I think that those soldiers, those statues exist everywhere, the common soldier statue. And I don't think it's as complicated a question as people want it to be, but I think it points to what people think about the war, which is that we still think we need to honor one side of the war, right? That there was a sacrifice made that's worth honoring for those soldiers. We wouldn't think that about any other war. So even still, we want to have the Confederacy be a part of the United States right? Even though they deliberately seceded, we want to see them as part of the narrative of the United States. That to me is the only reason why you would defend having a statue of just a generic Confederate soldier up, because you think that those soldiers were still part of some sort of American narrative. I mean, they were, but they weren't. <laughs> yeah, they, were on the lo- they were on the losing side, right? They I were mean, on the so- losing side of a civil <laughs> war, right? Like, and, yeah. you know, civil wars happen, you know, U.S. is unique. So you think about all the countries that have had civil wars over the last two, 300 years, are they erecting statues to the sides that lost the civil wars? I don't know. I, don't, I think that you know we have this sort of, because this reconciliation reunion does happen as messy and as you know, you know, not finally tied up as it was, it does happen between the white North and the white South. So I think those statues also tell an important story about what we value. Um, and how people still can't quite let go of this, the civil war as this fratricidal conflict, right? Between brother versus brother and that everyone came together as this family at the end of it. Like that's a narrative that people are still, still attached to. There's a lot about how we curate the past as well, doesn't it? I mean, we had a recent debate in Ireland about a memorial and whether names of English soldiers that died should be should be put alongside Irish soldiers. And again, like you said, the you know the the Confederates lost, the the English lost, and the the, the Irish won, and and uh, the, the the Irish are seen as the heroes of that memorial. So why are you putting English names on it? That debate uh, hasn't hasn't finished, and the debate in the states is even more complicated than the one in Ireland. How, how do we curate that? How do we get to the point where we can really talk about reconciliation, where we can understand legacy in a way that is gonna be more about healing rather than division? How do we get there? And I'm not saying you have the answers to all those questions, but it, I'd love to hear what you think. I don't know, you know, it's so interesting. I just talked with my students yesterday about 
you know, we were talking about public history and the memory of slavery, um, you know, ending a African-American class that ends at 1865. And I had them read Oliver Horton's like chapter in slavery and public history about Clinton's dialogue on race and racial reconciliation, right? Which is before their time, uh, <laughs> but I remember. And one of the things that Horton kind of gets at is how can we have a national dialogue and then even have reconciliation if we have no historical context for what we're getting into? And that's what I always fall back on. Before there's any sense of reconciliation or any even a dialogue, people have to know the history, right? And they do not is what I figure out every single day is that people don't really know this history in full. One, they do not know the extent that Black people participated in the Civil War, self-emancipated, um, that Black people were the ones who changed this war into a war about emancipation, right? It was not going to be a war about emancipation. Abolitionists, Black abolitionists in particular, pushed the issue that this, need, this war needed to be for freedom. And so many people don't even understand that. So they don't understand the stakes of what this war was about, right? It was not just a war, and I'm not saying just in a belittling way, it was not just a war to bring the union back together, to bring the United States back together. It was a war to free 4 million enslaved people. We have to start from there, right? And then everything else, if you start from there, everything else just seems not as important Right, like I just, I, you know, I tell my students, I taught a class, a seminar this semester on African-Americans in the Civil War. We start from there. And if you start from that perspective of the war's most important outcome is emancipation. And this was something that black people pushed. Now, Southerners wanted to expand slavery and also keep slavery. These are the facts to start with. Now let's think about how we understand a landscape of who we honor and who we're praising based on those two simple facts. It can't be defensible. You have to go into some sort of illogical loops about protecting history and this really generic terminology um, to make it make sense, right? And I've heard that argument, you know, we don't wanna tear down history. I don't think people say that as much anymore, but it was still like a really common argument. I'm like, we will still learn about Robert E. Lee. Last time I checked, there were still books being published. <laughs> so, you know, I was like, you know, this is, I think that we have to start with those facts and we get, when we get to those facts, maybe we could all come together around what we really want to, what we, what we want, if anything, on a commemorative landscape based on those facts alone, because I want to see people defend continuing having Confederate monuments up, even the generic soldier ones, based on the fact that the entire institution of the Confederacy was founded in the need to keep 4 million people and more is what they wanted enslaved. I think you're absolutely right. I mean, this is exactly the way reconciliation processes help happen all over the world. I mean, you have DeClerc who just recently died saying we have to accept these certain facts before we move on as a country. You have it in any place where there's conflict resolution, there is a baseline that everyone accepts as the truth. And that's something that we struggle with. Theodore Roosevelt once said that um, uh, the United States is the most belated of countries. You know, it takes us a long time to get around to this stuff. Uh, and uh, I think he's right about that. Um, I, I recently wrote an editorial about memorials, uh, suggesting that we consider what is uh, what we have in uh, Trafalgar Square in London, which is the fourth plinth. And I don't know if you if you know what the fourth plinth is or not, but I'll just I'll just say for the listeners, one of the plinths, there's four plinths in Trafalgar Square. Three of them have permanent fixtures on them. The fourth plinth, plinth has no fixed statuary, but rather a, a temporary or like revolving set of artworks that come in and out of the square. Um, for me, that's a great idea. I love it. I love the idea that we reimagine the past over and over again. And I just wondered if you had any ideas on how best to reimagine not only our most controversial sites, but even our most like accepted and we're, you know, we're quite happy to have this one here, but what, what do we do with it? How do we curate it for the present? Right. I mean, I think two things. One, I think you probably saw my tweet on this. We are so attached to statues and monuments. <laughs> we are too attached to statues and monuments. I don't know if that's a sacrilege thing to say as a historian, but I, it's my true belief is that so many conversations and like just upset around, you know, when someone removes a statue as if like it's the end of the world, right? 
And I do think that, you know, many spaces, including ones that are just like accepted, can be reinterpreted. I'm not a public historian. I think there are some creative people that have thought through these things, including having interactive exhibits. One is that, you know, statues just kind of exist on their own normally, right? There may be a plaque there and then that's it. And either you read the plaque, which I don't think a lot of people do, <laughs> they just see the statue and you just see the statue and its power, which is why I also have problems with contextualization. I think a better thing is to have something that's gonna pull people in, right? Something that's more interactive, something that's not just like this aesthetic thing to look at, something that requires people to think through their own ideas about certain historical events, right? Their preconceived notions that challenges it, um, something that's targeted to all ages, from children, you know, up to adults. Um, and I think, you know, I've seen creative sort of like interactive moving exhibits that do these kinds of things. Um, I've seen like current monuments sort of surrounded with contextualization, like, you know, like a temporary sort of contextualization attached to it um, that I think are useful. But yeah, I think we need to move from thinking that, you know, even erecting more monuments is a solution. Um, I think that, we need to think about other ways if we want to, you know, commemorate anything. I'm more about ideas than people at this point. Um, I think hero worship is what's, you know, is what, yes, brings a nation together. I do, I do know that and admit that. Um, but I think that it's dangerous because it leads to the idea of, of you know, actually taking away the humanity from these people uh, to the point that we reduced them to the ideas that they may have, you know, championed, but they did not represent in their personal lives. And I'm talking about the founders in this respect. Um, that, you know, once we have a statue of Jefferson, the statue of Jefferson is going, oh no, democracy is dying. And it's like, you know, <laughs> like, actually, we can't have Jefferson represent democracy, right? Jefferson is a person, an important person to this nation's history, but he's one person. So even when it's so-called a positive ideal, or even when it's people that I like and respect, I often am a little, you know, what can we, what can we represent through this person other than just their lives and their lives are complicated. And if we want a future where we're not taking down statues constantly, which is not a future I necessarily oppose, uh, if we want that kind of future, then we need to think about other ways of representing so-called ideals that are not through individuals. You know, and I know we're a very individualistic society. We're not that different than a lot of other nations that we have national heroes, right? Um, but are national heroes fixed? I don't think they're as fixed as statues are either. So, you know, I think that should change. I think our ideas about people that, you know, are heralded should change and evolve as we learn more things in our society values different things, better things, right? Than we valued before. And there's opportunities for that. I think you brought up a good point about this sort of like this having the shifting, you know, something that kind of comes and goes, you know, maybe, you know, have a term limit on a statue or a monument or memorial, right? Maybe you come together and you reassess a memorial that you put up 10 years before. I think about the emancipation monuments, the ones that were in Boston, which was removed, and then the one in DC, which is still there. Um, and that was, you know, at the time there were people like Douglas who were like, wait a second this is awful. Um, but yet still the defense has been like, oh, black people fundraised for this and, you know, et cetera, as though that's not what they wanted. But maybe if there was some sort of idea of like every few years, people came together, it was like, do we still want this monument up right now? Rather than it's been up since the 1870s, we can't take it down. Like, that's not the way to think about it, I think. And I think engaging history constantly is what we do as historians. And I think the disconnect is that you know, and we're not as connected to the public is engaging, is having the public engage in history in the same way. So that was going to be my last question, but you've already answered it for me, is what do we do is, as historians? Because I, I think you're right. I think we're at the vanguard of this, whether it's teaching our students 
or whether it's writing about these monuments and op-eds or just talking, you know, using the podcast, for example, to talk about these things, all of this dissemination and sharing is exactly what I think we should be doing. And I think you're absolutely right about our national heroes. Heroes do historic things, but they're not heroic every moment of their life. I mean, heroes were children at one stage. <laughs> heroes do bad things right. too. Um, and we need to, we need to contextualize and curate things so that they not only make sense in their time, but they make sense to us now and, and I think in the future as well. And uh, so I, I, you're, I couldn't agree with you more, Ashley. And I can't thank you enough for coming onto the show to share your research. So, and for any of the listeners, the book's not even out yet. Wait till the book is out. Tell us, tell us about your plans for publication or, or if, you're, if you're there yet. Uh, I'm still revising. Um, I'm hoping to have more definitive plans next year. Revisions have gone very well this semester. Like I said, you know, this has been a good semester for writing, actually. Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm excited about getting it out there. I think, you know, one of the things I'm doing in the book is taking it closer to the present. Because what I tell people is that you can't actually understand this moment. This is not as unique of a moment until we think about the ways that Black thinking about the war has evolved and changed. And in some ways, some central elements have remained, which is the central element of resistance and freedom. Right. And that's what sort of narrates a lot of like black people's ideas about the war itself. Um, and so I'm excited for people to read more, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, and it's been great. Um, you know, the research is great and it's just it's amazing. I can't wait to share every, all of it. So we, we yeah. can't we can't wait to read it all. It's really going to be, uh, I, I hope, a game changer for how we think about not only this period that's so central to many of the listeners, but also to our present and how we reconsider living with the ghosts of the Civil War um, and uh, and how and how we think of it in, in our memory. So uh, many thanks, Ashley, for joining us on the show. Thank you. Well, that's all we have time for. Thanks for listening. You can follow the Gilded Age and Progressive Era on Twitter or on my website, michaelpatrickcullinane.com. Please consider subscribing or reviewing the podcast wherever you listen because it really makes a big difference and helps direct others to the show. I hope you'll join me again for the next episode. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.